Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How would you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset, and that's when you can reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. Look, it's summertime. Transfer window is coming up. It's gonna get crazy. So if you ever just wanna, again, take a step back and relax, read the transfer rounds, read the gossip rumors, grab a Coors Light. It'll be perfect companion for all those transfer merry-go-rounds. There's only one beer out there that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. The mountains on the bottles and cans even turn blue when the beer is cold. That way you always know when it's time to chill. When you need to hit reset, just open a Coors Light. It's mountain cold refreshment made to chill. Now that it's finally hot in Minnesota, I'm gonna be looking for an easy beer to drink, and Coors Light is perfect for that. It's lagered, it's cold filtered, and it's cold packaged. It's, again, made to chill. It's crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies perfect for a moment to unwind and so when you want to hit reset reach for the beer that's made to chill get coors light in the new look delivered straight to your door with drizzly or instacart coors brewing company golden colorado and as always celebrate all right so you're listening to this podcast right now london is blue and guess what we host our podcast on anchor.fm that's right if you're looking to host your own podcast this is the easiest free way to get started. This has got a content creation tool allows you to record and the podcast right from a phone. That's right, don't even need a computer, but you can do it there too. They'll also help you distribute it, which is probably the most challenging part. You don't want to have to mess with that. They got you covered. You can get it right on a Spotify and Apple Podcasts as well as any other place podcasts are found. And you know what? You can monetize it too. Make a little cash for sharing your great content with the world. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one individual place. So you know what? Head over to your app store, download the Anchor app, or head to anchor.fm to get started if you're ready to launch your podcast and make it happen. I'm Pat Nevin. Hi, this is Ruben Loftus-Cheek. I'm Mason Mount. You're listening to the London is Blue podcast. Welcome back, Chelsea fans, to another episode of the London is Blue podcast, your home for all things Chelsea FC. Dan, Mike, Nick, and myself cover all the match reviews from the latest Chelsea matches. We cover the team news and even throw you some exclusive interviews. Thank you already for being an awesome listener. And you know what? Let's jump right in. All right, Chelsea fans, welcome back to another special episode in our Premier League season preview. We are going through several of the Premier League teams ahead of the upcoming season to understand, do a little oppo research, understand the competition, start to feel it out, figure out what we should be expecting. And I'm joined by Nick as well tonight to take a look at another one of the clubs. And who do we got in this this club that we're looking at right now, Nick? Well, uh, a, a team that I, I famously love to hate, and that is Arsenal. Uh, we are, we're we're going to talk about uh, our, our former colleagues in Europa League glory and uh, and see kind of what they have going into this year and, and what their ambitions are. Yeah, we are going to figure out um, why they would put themselves in a transfer ban situation when they don't have to. And to do that, we are joined by Elliot Smith. He's at Yankee Gunner on Twitter, but he's also one of the hosts of the Arsenal Arsenal Vision podcast. Elliot, welcome to the show, and we will try to make this as painless as possible, I swear. I appreciate that. I don't imagine we'll be picking up a lot of listeners for our pod with that promotion, but I appreciate you providing it anyway. <laughs> yeah, so um, maybe this, uh, just for those, you know, obviously who haven't listened to you yet, you know, 
how did you un- make the unfortunate decision of becoming an Arsenal supporter? Was it uh, something that you lost a bet? Was it mm. like, how did that work out for you? So it was actually before your club was founded. That was in the late 90s. Um, I was doing some huh. work. <laughs> uh, I was doing some work in London. Uh, and so I was there with reasonable frequency between 98 and 2001. Uh, and as you may know, uh, if you followed football, again, prior to the formation of Chelsea Football Club, uh, Arsenal were quite good back then. And in fact, kind of ironic, I, I do some TV stuff. So I was actually on TV opposite the Arsenal-Newcastle FA Cup final in 98. And, uh, you know, the results of our show were terrible and nobody was watching. And I sort of inquired why our show wasn't being watched. And they explained to me that there was this football match going on. And I was like, oh, there's soccer being played? They're like, no, there's football. Uh, so, yeah, I was like, all right, well, I can get with that. So I started to take an interest in it. Um, Arsenal did win the FA Cup that season. Uh, actually, they won the double, of course, a thing that we used to do with reasonable frequency. And then uh, I continued to watch them through the years while I was traveling to London. Uh, when I stopped going to London for business, I tried to keep up with them, able to watch in the Champions League back was uh, back when that was a thing that we did. And then, sure enough, NBC rolls around and, and starts providing regular access to watching Premier League games in the United States. The internet was invented, thanks to Fran- uh, Al Gore. And so... You know, we had the opportunity to start to interact more. I wrote a daily blog. I started to become active on Twitter, uh, started to guest do guest appearance on podcasts and engage with some other people about the club and just really fostered a closeness and a connection with the club that would otherwise have been difficult to do from a distance. So it started by being there geographically, by, by being physically close to the club, and then through writing and recording and, and engaging on social media, it just uh, turned into a lifelong disaster. Well. <laughs> Um, so it it also sounds like there was a sliding or like a a sliding doors moment that if Newcastle had won, would you have ended up being a Newcastle supporter instead? Mm, I strongly doubt it just because I was off put by the prison uniforms that they wore. But like, I, um, no, I I think there was a lot about Arsenal to like, and, and this is going to sound silly, but look, as you guys know, when you're not from that part of the world and you're coming to football later in life, anything that connects you to a club and to the game can wind up having an influence on, you know, how you support and who you support. And so at the time I played a lot of FIFA, uh, on my console and Arsenal were a hell of a lot of fun to play with. And that only became increasingly the case as Thierry Henry arrived at the club and so on and so forth. So, you know, I think when I got back from those trips and fired up the, the console of the moment, whatever it was at that time, I think it might have been the Xbox, the original one, but I digress. Um, you know, that was the team that I would play with, and, and as the players continued to get better uh, season after season, I continued to enjoy playing with them, and that, that just helped foster that connection. And I know, again, it might seem a little bit silly to bring up like a video game as a way of connecting to your team, but, you know, again, the only games that were televised here were Champions League games. The league was hard to follow. Uh, Social media was really in its infancy, along with access to coverage. So you created that connection any way you could. Um, So for people who think that's sort of silly, you know, I would just say that at that time, there were very few ways to stay close to your club uh, absent actually making the trip over to England. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. And I think any Premier League team supporter, any even, you know, whether it's Bundesliga or Serie A supporter of a club, who lives in the United States probably has a very similar story that brought them to following that team. So as we kind of look at maybe your enjoyment of watching Arsenal, hmm. um, so what, what's been the best moment for you as a supporter to date? Like what's that kind of key moment that you'll continue to point back to is like, this has been my high point 
rooting and supporting Arsenal. Uh, I imagine it has nothing to do with Arsenal fan TV, but I'll, I'll <laughs> leave the door open there. No, it, it certainly does not. Um, you know, they, they can do their thing. I choose not to associate with it personally. Um, I actually think that the majority of their viewers come uh, from other clubs actually looking to ridicule ours. So, you know, we can we can determine that at a later date. No, for me, I mean, look, there's the obvious ones, right? I mean, uh, winning the league at White Hart Lane uh, in the Invincible season is, is probably the absolute high watermark. But what's interesting is because a lot of the big, great moments um, – from the earlier years of my support in Arsene Wenger's pomp, because those are sort of an attenuated relationship now, you know, I have to look for more contemporary examples. So I think the biggest high I felt that I can still really connect to emotionally in a very clear way uh, that still feels relevant and recent uh, is the FA Cup win over Hull because that broke a decade-long trophy drought. Um, it was a stick that was used to beat the club and the manager and was just generally you know, really unfortunate period because the club had moved stadium. There was a lot of debt. There was an effort to sort of get through that period using a lot of youth players. And it had felt like we were turning the corner. Ozil had arrived. Alexis had arrived. We were starting to spend. And I think there was this feeling that we get the trophy drought off our back and that we had turned a corner and that it was onward to bigger and better things. Now it was in the sense that we did wind up winning three FA cups over the next few years, which is great. Um, obviously in the league and in Europe, the resurgence didn't really come to pass. So the win over Hull, certainly the win over Chelsea was a high watermark. It may sound silly because it's a nothing game. It was halftime of a two-legged tie. But the win over Barcelona at the Emirates um, in the Champions League, back when they were the best club side, maybe in history, uh, Arshavin with the late goal, that felt like a christening moment for the Emirates and was one that I remember as a high. I mean, look, it may seem silly to a club, uh, or fans of a club that have a Champions League victory in their recent past and, and Premier League victories, but y you really have to go back to the Invincible season for something that was a meaningful accomplishment outside of the FA Cup for the club. So those would be the moments. I, I mean, obviously, beating Real Madrid in the Champions League en route to to reaching the Champions League final, but that wound up being a heartbreaking moment ultimately. So some good moments along the way, but since winning the league at White Hart Lane, it's been a bit of a fallow period. I think the FA Cups obviously are the high moments. So uh, I don't, I don't want to, don't want to be rude, but we have to talk about last season a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, um, why not? <laughs> you know, um, it, it was an interesting year. Like we, we've done this with a, a couple of other shows, podcasts, and you know, we we just talked to um, our friend JJ with the Liverpool podcast last night, and you know, he was talking about all this great stuff that happened. We're like, yeah, 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 whatever. Um, you guys had a really interesting year. Uh, you had an offense, uh, you know, it really shown in the in the final third, and you had a, a defense that couldn't stop leaking goals, and your league position fluctuated between third and sixth most of the year. Uh, talk us through, you know, kind of how you feel about stuff. I mean, you obviously, you know, finished outside of the Champions League places in the Premier League. Um, you were not a part of the. Uh, a, a huge part of the FA Cup run. Um, you know, talk us through this. Well, you know, I mean, look, here's the reality. It's never easy changing from a generational manager like Arsene Wenger to a new manager, not just a new manager, but a coach, right? And and changing the structure of the club. Ivan Gazidis was a big part of, uh, he was our chief executive. He was a big part of selecting Unai Emery in the process of moving forward and Sven Mislintat, the, the head uh, scout, who was really the super scout from Dortmund, responsible for fi finding guys like Usmani Dembele. Um, 
And then Gazidis leaves at the beginning of the season. And Mislintat leaves after falling out where he didn't get the technical director job. And Raul Sanyehi is suddenly running the club with Vinay Venkatesham, who is a, you know, an accountant who's promoted to be basically top of the club with Raul. And this head coach suddenly has a totally new leadership structure over him. There's no technical director until Edu arrived literally just last week. So there was a lot of turmoil at the club. And I feel for Unai Emery because he stepped into a really challenging period uh, you have Mesut Ozil, who is on 350,000 pounds a week, but didn't really feel like turning up and, and playing for the new man. Uh, Aaron Ramsey, who you know goes into the final year of his contract and winds up being able to leave on a free, and a defense that couldn't, you know, couldn't keep anybody out. Not to mention then that he suffers the season-ending injury to Bellerin, season-ending injury, injury to Holding, and season-ending injury to Danny Welbeck. And I think the season really had no chance to recover from there. All that having been said, I was terribly disappointed with the job that Unai Emery did for a variety of reasons. Um, I thought that his tactical flexibility, which early in the season felt refreshing, really was just uh, papering over the cracks of a, a coach who never displayed a clear philosophy. We played with a back four. We played with a back three. We played with two up front. We played with one up front. Aubameyang got shunted to the wing. Sometimes he would get to start as a lone striker, but more often than not, he was either paired with Lacazette or put out wide. You know, you, you reference an attack that was effective, and, and despite our goal tally, our shot numbers were down, our expected goal numbers were down, our shot differential was bad, our big chances were down. Um, you know, in all the advanced metrics and underlying data that you look at to evaluate the performance over the season, we were a worse team last season than in Arsene Wenger's last. Worse defensively and worse in attack. And I don't think Unai Emery ever settled on a system, a formation, a way of playing that he was able to communicate and transmit to the players. And look, you can have a bad season when it's your first season as a coach, but I think you need to show progress in developing a philosophy and buy-in from the players and improvement over the course of the season. And Arsenal were arguably the worst team in the league over the last month or six weeks of the season. We got demonstrably worse, not to mention the way he tried to manage the Ozil situation leaving him on the bench for months at a time, only to bring him back late in the season when he needed him. So who knows what message that transmitted. Leaving Aaron Ramsey out uh, when there was a contract dispute and then playing him through an injury and ultimately losing him for the run-in, which probably cost us our Champions League place. And a complete collapse, playing a, an absolute shambles of a lineup at home to Crystal Palace, losing a game that had we gotten points there would have seen us be in the, in the Champions League. His remit was to get us back in the Champions League. The opportunity was there. And he couldn't get it over the line with a, a fairly straightforward run-in. So there are a lot of uh, factors that that could be used, I think, exculpatory factors for him. And I, I think giving him a second season is just about understandable. And I'm certainly excited to see what he can do and, and hope he does the best. But for me, it, it's as close to a failure of a first season as you could ask. So a uh, quick follow on this because we... We obviously, I think, followed each other's results pretty closely there mm -hmm. <laughs> there at, at the end of the season. Yep. And and I think, uh, you know, for, for our show, we, we looked at your run-in and we looked at our run-in. And we we're like, shit, these guys have a way easier. You guys had Brighton. You guys had Palace. You know, like. It, Wolves, it was, Watford. Yeah. I mean, it was not a Leicester. It was not a murderer's row by any stretch. Right. So we're, we're looking at this and we're, we're trying to, you know, do advanced metrics here ourselves and predict the future every week. And. You know, it just became really challenging towards the end, and I, I, I think it was a complete capitulation from those four teams that were fighting for it. Honestly, like the only reason we advanced is because we didn't lose three of our last five. You know, it, it mm. was it was crazy. Spurs, 
probably were the worst form of anyone at the end of the year. And they, you know, obviously made the Champions League final. But uh, point being that we were looking at a manager, Maurizio Sarri, who got a ton of, of flack, a ton of negative vibes, press were all over him. And it seemed like in, in a similar parallel path that Unai Emery was getting a lot of like trust and, you know, a lot of people were, were, you know, not all over his back. And maybe it's because of his demeanor with the press, or maybe it's because he's just a more affable, likable guy. But what did you kind of make of that, seeing the dynamic between the two? Well, I mean, I think it's emblematic of a club where winning is a priority and a club where it's not clear what the owner's ambition is. I mean, you're probably aware there, or maybe you're not, but there's a major uh, protest against ownership going on over at Arsenal. There's a a campaign under the hashtag we care to you on Twitter. There's a petition with closing in on 200,000 signatures and it's not just spend some money. It's, it's that the fans want a statement of intent from ownership. Stan Kroenke cares more about the LA Rams than he does about Arsenal. Fine. But he's let the rot sink in and there's no clear, uh, I, I think there's no clear sign or indication that competing for major honors is important to him. And you look at the pressure on Maurizio Sarri to deliver results or lose his job and the complete lack of that same pressure, not just on Unai Emery, but on leadership at the club. I mean, it was the same way for Arsene Wenger for a couple of years, the same way for Ivan Gazidis, and it's really worrying. Now, look, Chelsea have a culture of sacking managers. That's just the way it is, right? If you can't get it done, we'll replace you with someone who can, and if he can't get it done, we'll replace him with someone who can. We had a manager for over 20 years, and so... I can totally understand the desire to give the new guy a chance, but I don't I don't know that there were ever metrics laid out or, or uh, signpost achievements that were laid out for him that said, here's what you have to do to be evaluated as having performed successfully and keep your job. You know, I mean, Unai Emery gave a press conference at one point last season where he said, along the lines of, you know, at PSG, I was under tremendous pressure to win and I never felt like I was securing the job here. I feel like it's more of a project and I have time and I'm not going to lose my job if we lose a game. And it kind of rubbed me the wrong way because it was sort of like saying, at the other place I had to win and here I don't. Now, I realize that's the worst possible interpretation of what he was saying. And his English, I mean, look, learning the language is hard and English is particularly difficult, but his English wasn't great. So it was hard to interpret his words a lot last season. But in general, I just don't know that there is that that need to win. I don't know that the need to win uh, flows through the entire club from players to coach to executives and whether people really feel that their job is dependent upon delivering results. And so we'll see what happens this season. But yeah, watching what happened with Sari, I mean, I, I, I don't watch Chelsea closely enough to know if Sari should have stayed on in the job. I understand where some of the frustration came from. I also think there are limitations with the squad he was handed. He's sort of the anti-Emery in that it seems that he is very much an idealist about the way he wants to play football and is unwilling to deviate from that, whereas Emery doesn't seem to have any clear philosophy. And I think, ironically, Arsenal fans are crying out more for the the idealist, and maybe Chelsea fans are crying out more for the pragmatist. So maybe it's just a case of a bad fit. It sounds like that could be the case. So if you think about biggest regret for last season, do you think it is it the not getting into the Champions League spot? Is it that the lack of progress under Emery? Is it potentially particular players that didn't grow and flourish under this new leadership? Like, where is mm -hmm. the biggest regret that you would see or have and you feel like the Arsenal fan base feels 
about last season in, in totality. Yeah, it's just failing to grab that last Champions League spot, right? I mean, the run-in was straightforward. The opportunities were there. Take a point from Palace. Take a point or two points more from Brighton at home. We had the lead at home to Brighton and couldn't get the win. Um, just a lot of the same mistakes being made along the way as well. But, yeah, I think if there's any misgiving, it's not getting that Champions League spot. And the the loss in the Europa League final was really embarrassing. Um, but I don't think getting back into the Champions League through the Europa League is the path you can depend on because cups are inherently a roll of the dice. But in the league, we had we had a clear opportunity to do that. And I think the reason there's so much frustration about it is the squad desperately needs renewing. It definitely definitely needs to be turned over a bit. And if we had Champions League, the prestige of Champions League football and the money that goes with it, we really could have probably done some exciting business this summer and started the rebuilding process. Without it, it looks like that's getting pushed on to the future and a lot of things are getting papered over the cracks, loan moves, um, young center backs who are being loaned out for the year, not even coming to the club this year. And so it's hard to see how we take a step forward this season. The encouraging thing, I would say, is that the same flaws in the top four challengers from last season, I think may even be exaggerated this season. So I don't think the door is shut on us returning to the top four this season. Um, but yeah, the biggest regret is definitely not seizing that opportunity with a with a really straightforward run. So I think it's a good, a good transition moment. You're talking about refreshing the squad, trying to not just paper over cracks, but actually make that type of seismic change. Uh, in terms of departures, you know, really losing... The, the best veteran on your squad and Petr Cech retiring. Um, that obviously very sad moment, but ha- we're happy to have him back at Sanford mm-hmm. Bridge. Um, anyone other than maybe Ramsey leaving? Um, I mean, it, it doesn't seem like there's anyone really of note that I would be terribly concerned about in terms of departures, but how are you feeling about who's left the club um, mm. in this kind of summer window? Well, the problem is Ramsey leaving is devastating. I mean, it's completely devastating because... He, the team just didn't work without him. It's that simple. The back three absolutely was not functional without Aaron Ramsey because it was it was just too uh, dire in attack. It, it was not able to create the, the numerical advantage in the final third because you have two men in midfield, you have five defenders, so you're playing with really just three attackers. With Ramsey, he was able to make those progressive runs, arrive in the box late, and add that fourth attacker. Without him, we had two, uh, uh, two central midfield pairing neither of which wanted to attack, whether it's Shaka and Torreira or Shaka and Ganduzi, Ganduzi and Torreira, whichever it is, those guys aren't final third players. Losing Ramsey is terrible. I mean, he's he is a unicorn. He is a goal-scoring midfielder who can defend all the way back to his own box. He can cover the entire pitch. Um, he can provide an assist where necessary. So I just, I think you're losing someone who's not only uh, got tremendous quality, but also tremendous character came through in a lot of big games for us. You know, I don't like to go to soft factors that often, but I think in his case it's warranted. And you can see his value snapped up by Juventus. So, yeah, that's a big loss. And, I mean, look, we could be on the precipice of losing Koscielny, who's in a contract standoff to try to get out of the club, go back to France, and get one more contract before his career is over. And it shows you (laughs) the state of our central defense, that we're desperate for Koscielny to stay another season when he's, you know, in his mid-30s and just back from an Achilles tear. But he was the only competent central defender we had other than Rob Holding, who's also coming back from a long-term injury. So without Koscielny and without Ramsey, you know, the spine is is weaker. And, you know, I mean, if we bring in Ceballos, Ceballos uh, on loan from Real Madrid, that could help. 
replace a little bit of that. We're now looking at leaning on youngsters. I mean, Danny Welbeck is gone. Eddie Enkedia, who's who's one of our younger players, looks like he may be poised to pick up some of the minutes that, that Welbeck would have gotten. But defensively, we're holding it together with you know, duct tape. I don't, I don't know what we're going to do back there. And in midfield, uh, if we want to play the back three, I just think Ramsey's loss makes that almost an unusable formation for us. Is it because Mesut Ozil is so good at tracking back? Or? Mm. Uh, Mesut Ozil, <laughs> the conundrum that is Mesut Ozil. Um, you know, look, I-, I think great coaches find ways to, to utilize players such that you uh, emphasize, maximize the qualities that make them special and minimize their deficiencies, their limitations. You put them in positions to succeed. And I think Unai Emery doesn't look at it that way. You know, he looks at players as chess pieces who all have to buy in, all have to play the role they're given. And I understand that. You know, Pep Guardiola probably expects the same thing. Klopp probably expects the same thing. I understand that. But when you have a player like Mesut Ozil, who is more of the old school number 10, and that is, I admit, a role that is fading from modern football, I just don't think Unai Emery ever really put him in a position to thrive. What we do in build-up is get the ball to wingbacks, get the ball to wide spaces, and try to create cutbacks for players arriving in the box. Mesut Ozil doesn't do that. And if you look at his distribution as sort of passing sonars from his, the, the year before Emery arrived, a lot of through balls, a lot of central balls, a lot of um, deep progressions in the middle of the pitch. And you look at it this season, and it's all spraying balls out to the wings. So while I am not by any means a Mesut Ozil defender, I, I think he needs to work harder. I think he needs to be more committed. I think his body language is terrible, which, again, isn't substantively that important, but he just doesn't look like he's up for the fight all the time. Um, I still think Unai Emery can do a better job utilizing the unique skills and talents that he has. Now, admittedly, he's been working really hard in preseason. He looks up for it. He's saying the right things. So with any luck, they buried the hatchet, and he will be more involved this season. Because look, if you've got 350,000 pounds a week invested in a mercurial number 10 who's on the wrong side of 30, you got to make the best of it. And if you can't make the best of it, you're going to really struggle. So... I would like to see us play with the back four more with the three-man midfield and try to get Mesut Ozil in a position to pop up in those spaces between the thirds uh, where he can he can deliver to the two really talented players in the team, and that's Lacazette and Aubameyang. Yep. Uh, so let's talk about what you guys need, uh, you know, which is a lot, it sounds like, <laughs> to, to, uh, to be, you know, kind of in the race for the top four again this year. Uh, you know, you, you kind of spoke earlier about uh, Ceballos coming in on loan. There's also, it uh, looks like uh, Saliba uh, from St. Etienne might be uh, on the way as well. We, yeah, um, we've signed him, but we're loaning him back to St. Etienne this season. Okay. So he won't he won't okay. be playing for us. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. So who else? Who else is on the list that, yeah. you know, that you guys are really looking to, to kind of replace some of the production that you've lost? Well, the good news is everyone agrees on the areas where we need players. We need a center back. We need a left back. We need a midfielder of some note, some kind of midfielder with drive and athleticism, ideally an attacking midfielder. And then we need a winger, like a true goal-scoring, dribbly, explosive winger. We've been flirting with a move for Zaha, but I don't see how we spend the money it would cost to bring him in. And I'm not sure that we should be spending 60, 70 million pounds on a soon-to-be 27-year-old wide forward whose best season is 10 goals and five assists. But, you know, I mean, if we get him, he certainly improves us. Uh, It looks like we probably were going to sign Kieran Tierney to fill that left back hole, but we've run into problems with Celtic, and now the rumors are that we may be moving on to other targets. We absolutely need a left back. Look, guys, the reason we're using the back three isn't just because Emery's, you know, an idiot or anything. We have a terrible group of defenders. Uh, The center backs aren't very good, but we're still 
the left backs are Nacho Monreal, who can't run anymore, and Kolasinac, who was a wingback. He's not a fullback. He can't defend in a back four. And with Bellerin recovering from a long-term injury, we had a, a midfielder, a young midfielder, playing fullback on the other side. So we was forced to go to the back three. If we could get a true fullback, left-sided fullback, who can play in a back four, and Bellerin comes back, he doesn't have to go to the back three as much. So if we get Tierney, that'd be great. If not, we need a left back. I think Ceballos makes a big, big difference for us. You know, you look at the midfielders we have. Torreira, really good, really tricky and, and agile, but a defensive uh, midfielder, not someone who's known for his ball progressions. I mean, he can trick his way past a man, but he's not going to play the progressive pass. Granit Xhaka is the epitome of just a pile of lead sitting in midfield. I mean, he he is totally immobile, can't defend, can't move. He sprays long balls really well. That's about it. So you bring Ceballos in, and now you have a guy who's a really good progressor of the ball who can beat a man. He's press resistant. He can drive through midfield. He can bring the ball into the attacking third and give it to someone like Mesedos or give it to those wide forwards. And and that's something we've lacked. So I think he could replace some of what we lose with Ramsey. He won't replace the goals and assists because he doesn't have end product, but he will replace the drive and the progression. So I think he makes a big difference for us. Um, I don't know if we'll get that wide forward, but if we were to get Zaha, obviously, you know, look, if you can pull a defender out of position, beating them off the dribble, Aubameyang's going to kill you in the, in the box. So... That would be interesting to see. So look, left back, center back, central midfielder, wide forward, window closes in a couple weeks. How hard can it be? You know, uh, easy, super easy. And uh, given the amount of money that Arsenal has, yeah, budget of forty five million. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> What's the problem? Uh, yeah, it's like when you tell a chef is told to make a dinner for everybody, and then you give them like twenty bucks. Uh, it just doesn't work. Yeah, uh, and th- and then you tell them that you know one person has a gluten allergy, and the other person has a nut allergy, and the other person has a. a Milk allergy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's yeah. it's next to you impossible. Want, you want Flamingo and you're going to get Chef Boyardee instead. So uh, just enjoy. <laughs> so maybe we're used to it. <laughs> uh, so let's maybe take a look, a little different look. So uh, you know, we like hearing, uh, getting a little bit of our of, out of our echo chamber of Chelsea conversation to get other supporters' views on what's going on with the the chaos that is Chelsea. What is your take on the current state after last season and the appointment of Lampard? What, how do you view that as an Arsenal supporter looking across London to what's going on with Chelsea? Well, I think the one thing that every non-Chelsea fan is always wondering about Chelsea is how invested does Roman Abramovich continue to be in this club and the success of the club? Is he going to turn that tap of spending back on or not? Now, hard to do when you have a transfer ban, admittedly. But, I mean, you know, with all due respect, Chelsea rose to prominence in the Premier League by spending a hell of a lot of money. And now it seems to be a slightly different model of being a little more self-sustaining. The loan army, loaning players out, selling them on for money, using those proceeds to you know, to try to buy new players and, and really living within your means a little more. So, I mean, I think that's the first question a lot of fans have looking from the outside in is just, is Roman Abramovich committed to a new way of doing things? And if so... You know, how do you compete in that new world? Um, you know, I like Christian Pulisic a lot, and I, I think he's a really exciting player. Obviously, as an American, I hope he succeeds. As an Arsenal fan, I hope he fails miserably. But, like, <laughs> he's not Eden Hazard. I don't think anyone expects that. I just don't see how losing an experienced, successful manager like Sari and losing a player like Eden Hazard and replacing it with some returning loan players and Christian Pulisic makes you any better. So from the outside looking in, and with Ruben Loftus-Cheek injured long-term and Callum Hudson-Odoi injured long-term um, and Iguain gone, right? He's gone, isn't he? 
Did, yes, yep, thank God. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you say thank God. Who's going to score goals for you? So, like, I just, you know, I, I see Chelsea as being vulnerable. I really do. You get, you know, you got to play twice a week. Champions League is back. I mean, in, in Europa League, at least you can rotate in those group stages and, and play them like League Cup games. You got to take the Champions League more seriously. So it doesn't look a huge squad to me. It doesn't look a squad that's Champions League ready necessarily. You're integrating new players, losing very influential players. And look, Frank Lampard but might wind up being a great coach at some point. Is he ready to be a great coach now? I'm skeptical. Um, you know, I've listened to some other podcasts that talked a little bit about the job he was doing before he got the Chelsea job and how the underlying metrics from his teams were not as good as, as the performances or as the results, I should say. I'm just not convinced that bringing back a legendary player before he's made that next big step up in management is a safe way to go. And, you know, the problem is, you can't run him out of town like you do a Mauricio Sorry, right? Like you can't run your greatest ever player out of town. So Chelsea are committed to this course probably for a few seasons. You also never know with a younger player, even if he's a legend in the game, how will he respond to other players? What's that tension like in the dressing room? I mean, I think you see it. Some players at work, Zinedine Zidane at Real Madrid. Some players, Thierry Henry, not been so great as a coach, right? Gary Neville, not so great as a coach. So... My hope is, and I'm sure this is not your hope, but my, my hope is that there's enough instability at Chelsea right now, enough change, and a lack of really dynamic attacking talent that it's going to be a tough season for you guys. I, it wouldn't be surprising to me if this season was a big step back. And I guess my first question to you would be, maybe you can educate me, where are your goals going to come from? Because I, I really don't see it. Well, um, it's one of our it's one of our challenges that we we battle on a week to week basis. I mean, I, I think when you looked at some of our advanced metrics from last season, and you looked at the kind of ball progression through up up till about the final third, and then you know we gave Eden Hazard the ball and let him do whatever he wanted with it. Um, the hope is that with a more kind of selfless approach in the final third and players who are making runs and not watching one guy make runs that uh, we're going to be a little bit more, you know, dynamic from all areas. Um, but I mean, it's certainly something that we're concerned about. I mean, you know, Olivier Giroud, uh, former Arsenal player, um, you know, is, is not a great league goal scorer. He's a fantastic cup player. Um, so he's going to have to step up. You know, we have a young guy in Tammy Abraham who mm, yeah. is is proven in the championship but not proven in the league. And, you know, then we have uh, Mishu Batshuayi who is as good as a poacher as I think exists. But, you know, to be a good poacher, you have to have the ball kind of break your way. So I, it, it is a concern. Pulisic's not going to be, you know, likely. He's not going to be our lord and savior when it comes to goal scored. I think he'll be fine on the assist front. Uh, and then it's up to William and Pedro and, and you know, whenever Hudson-Odoi gets back to kind of make up some of the balance. But, I mean, it is it is goal scoring by rotation, uh, much like you'd have a, a running back by committee. Yeah, and look, when I hear you say that, <laughs> I, I understand intellectually how you can talk yourself into that working out. But <laughs> the, the one thing I can tell you is that, like, there's no substitute for goals. You know, like, there just isn't. Small clubs can get by a little bit by being stout at the back, and the odd guy chips in with a goal here or there, and you get some draws, and you, you avoid relegation. Big clubs can't do that. you got to score 70 goals. You know what I mean? You, you've got to score goals. And, I, I mean, you can, you can sort of argue your way into thinking, here's how we're going to score goals. But, like, we have Aubameyang and Lacazette. 
So as big of a dumpster fire as we are, that's 45 goals, 50 goals, you know, in all comps. And potentially, I think quite realistically in the league, that's probably a 40 goals in the league right there between those two players. You're on your way to having a, a real attack that can accomplish something. Now I say that and I realize like on XG, we actually really weren't that special last year. But as as poor as we were, I mean, your expected goals were behind ours last season and that's with Eden Hazard and you've just lost him. So I, I don't think you can system your way to scoring goals. I don't think you can rotate your way to scoring goals. I don't think you can manufacture goals. I think you need players who score goals and I, I don't see guys having it. So that, look, and and there's a lot of good players still at Chelsea and Chelsea are still arguably a better squad than Arsenal. But if I had a hope for how we would get past you this season, it would be that you just can't put teams under enough pressure. And I think increasingly, as the Premier League has gotten a little stronger at the bottom, you know, the top is obviously very strong, but at the bottom, I think these other teams, the Wolves and Watfords and Everton's of the world, the Crystal Palaces of the world, the Leicester certainly, these teams can trouble you. They can put you under pressure. They can play with you now. And and I don't mean you, I mean us as well, but you know, with the big clubs. So you got to be able to go out and score goals because you're you're not going to roll over the small teams like you used to in the Premier League. So, uh, you know, I, I guess I take your point about how you might share it around and, and where the opportunities might come from, but I don't see you pulling a 20-25 goal scorer rabbit out of your hat. Yeah, I mean, it would have to be someone either between Mishi or Tammy to be that 20-plus, mm-hmm. and while Tammy has been able to do that in multiple seasons in the championship, but again, the question becomes, is he capable of doing it when he is playing in a Premier League side and obviously had a pretty poor loan spell at Swansea, but obviously is now playing with individuals on a side who are much better than the people he was playing with Swansea is going to have more trust from Frank Lampard. So can he make that transition? Can Lampard help him up his game quickly enough? Um, You know, I think if he was even getting or shading close to 20 in the 17 to 18 range at the end of the season, the Premier League, uh, we would be able to across then manufacture enough. But I mean, you know, William has had uh, a terrible time getting into double digits in the, the league. Uh, Pedro has, you know, been able to shade in a little bit higher. Mason Mount potentially would be the other one from distance that, you know, he looks likely to be a contributor and has done, you know, done well in, um, you know, for Vitesse and has done well uh, for Darby and being able to contribute goals from distance. So I think I I see your concern and I think that we have the same concern and we were hoping this, you know, this summer to go sign a striker that we could Hmm. really put our, hang our hat on a Luka Jovic potentially, but that didn't happen. So uh, you're right. We're going to have to cobble something together. And I think that's where we're going to need our defense to be super stout this season and be okay with a little less possession, be a little bit different than what Risa Sari was trying to attempt from a possession based match and game and hope that we can be defensively stout enough to find our way over the first couple months and to figure out where those goals are going to start to come from. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be curious to see. I mean, I hope they don't come from anywhere, obviously. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, the other thing, you know, and this, this is where I think the improvement in data in football and the use of data in football has changed the way we look at the game a little bit. And getting into goal-scoring positions and shot totals and XG per shot and things like that really changed the way we look at things. And, you know, if you said to me, what was the biggest problem with Arsenal's attack last season? I just say, we just didn't shoot enough. We have talented players who can finish chances and we have guys that get into good scoring positions. I think Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang is probably the best player 
maybe in world football in terms of getting into good goal-scoring positions. But we just don't shoot enough. And if you don't have guys that get off a lot of shots, your your attack just is never going to reach the level you want it to. So you know, where are the shots coming from for you? It's the same question for us, but ours is about building the play well enough to create those shots. Yours is probably going to be about who's going to take the responsibility to get off you know, three, four, five, six shots a game. Yeah, my, my only hope uh, is, you know, that luckily our manager now is is one of the finest finishers um, ever in the league. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and hopefully they are uh, conjuring up some sort of spell in training where the, the players are able to find uh, the back of the net more often than they, they would have and that they all uh, even slightly improve their, their total potential uh, this year because – I mean, it's it's going to be the lifeblood. Our midfield is great. Our our you know defense is relatively solid. Uh, you know, I feel good about our goalkeeper. You know, it is it is really the you know kind of front three or front four that will be you know the determining factor for us. And that's you know kind of how we're going to move into our final projections, Dan. All right, yeah. So we want to hear your projections now, Elliot. On how you think Arsenal will finish the upcoming season. So we'll start with league table position. Where do you think Arsenal end up when it's all said and done, 38 matches at at the end of it all? So here's the the funny thing, right? Like your brain doesn't work great when you start to project the future with your your football club. Like it just doesn't engage (laughs) because intellectually I understand that Arsenal are at best the sixth best team in the Premier League and very easily could finish seventh. I could see a Leicester finish, finishing ahead of us. I could see Wolves finishing ahead of us um, or falling back. I mean, they're they're kind of on a razor's edge a bit. But, like, the reality for me is I believe that our attack is special. I still think there's a chance that we get some moves done, like a Ceballos and a Tierney that really changes things for us. Our defense is going to be bad. We conceded 51 goals last season, and we're still right in it for top four. I think we will score more goals this season. I think we'll be more effective going forward. I think we'll concede those 51 goals again. So the question is, will the will the people competing with us be any better or worse? I think United and Chelsea will be worse, and I think we will finish fourth in a season where maybe, maybe the high 60s, 68, 67, 69 points potentially gets you a top four place. Oof. Ooh, spicy! That is uh, that is a prediction. It's going to be um, close again, though. It's good. there's going to be one point in it either way with those three clubs. Yeah, I, I mean, are are you of the same mind that right now there's a top two tier that is essentially City and Liverpool, and then now there's this grouping of about four to five clubs where you know maybe you could say that that Spurs are just from a personnel standpoint shade just a little bit above the rest of that grouping. But in my mind, when it look when you look at Chelsea, when you look at United. Uh, even what Wolves have done to strengthen, and then you know you look at what either Leicester or maybe even Everton have done to try to be competitive into the upcoming season. Uh, I, I don't think anything is guaranteed. No, I mean I I think that it's City and Liverpool clearly, although Liverpool are probably going to be a little behind City this season. I, I I struggle to see them continuing what they did last season. Uh, I don't know that Spurs are I, Spurs are definitely closer to the next group than they are to that group. Uh, they've lost Ericsson. They're about to lose Ericsson anyway. And it looks like they're going to lose Ericsson to Manchester United, which is really weird, really interesting. But we'll see what happens there. Um, but, I, yeah, I think they could fall back. And Harry Kane's ankles are a real worry for them. And without him, again, a team that I don't know that can score quite as much. I realize they made their Champions League run without him. And uh, Son is a, is a good player. But I think they could fall back a little bit. 
I think that next tier of, of Chelsea, Arsenal, United, I think that's pretty close grouping. If one of them struggles and has a slow start, I think they're vulnerable to being overtaken probably by Leicester. That's the team I look at as as really being poised to maybe get into that group. Um, Everton's right there, certainly, but I, I think it's probably Leicester. But yeah, for me, that's the grouping. All right, so there's also domestic cups on the line, an FA Cup and a League Cup. Do you think Arsenal secure either of those this season? No, I don't. I mean, I... We don't, we don't have the depth. I mean, the, the thing that really aggravated me with Emery last season is he just didn't rotate. He didn't use the kids enough. We have some really, really exciting, talented kids that I would love to see get an opportunity to play a lot. And if he uses them in the FA Cup and the League Cup and the Europa League group stage, I'd be thrilled. Um, I would love to see him use them as far as they can go in those cups. I, I hope that Emery basically throws the FA Cup and the League Cup because... We can't afford to be focused on that right now. We have to be focusing on top four and the Europa League. So, no, I don't expect us to be competing for those. Some of it's down to the draw, how long it takes us to draw a big club, but I don't expect us to have deep runs. All right, and you also mentioned it as well, Europa League. Now that Chelsea are out of it, the arch nemesis is gone from the competition, at least you know until we potentially parachute down. Um, do you think you win the Europa League this upcoming season? I mean, we'll be in the semifinal, right? So it's like, can you win a semifinal and a final? And, I mean, if the semifinals against Manchester United, it's a coin toss. You know, if it's, if it's against, I mean, you look at the way we were a bad team and we manhandled Valencia, you know. Um, the, the, the teams in, the, in that competition just aren't any good. They're complete garbage. So I would expect us to be in the final again, probably, and then it's a coin toss for me to probably be Manchester United or whatever really good team parachutes down from the Champions League. I mean, two seasons ago, we probably should have beaten Atletico or Atletico Madrid in the uh, semifinal. We didn't, but that's a really, really good team. You know, that's a Champions League caliber team. So if you wind up with someone like that, you're probably not going to win it. But I, I think, as crazy as it sounds, I think the Europa League is a coin toss because essentially we're we're in the semifinal from the time the first game kicks off. Yep, you you basically are. Um, you've talked about a lot of different players um, so far during the show, but. Uh, if you had to project who the best player uh, at your club will be this season, who will that be? Uh, that's easy. It's the player who I think is the best player in the Premier League, and that's Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. I think he's criminally undervalued. Uh, he has been one of the elite number nine t- scorers in all of Europe for many years. Yep. A 30-goal season for, for Dortmund. On XG for Dortmund over a couple seasons, he was a one XG per game striker, um, which is just insane. Uh, he he led the Premier League in XG per 90 last season, um, and I think he will do it again. I don't see any sign of a decline. He's been red hot in preseason. Um, and I, again, it's preseason, but just the running, the speed, the, the dynamism. As long as he's not shunted out to the wing and playing in stupid uh, formations, and if Ozil can get incorporated a little bit more, or if, or if we play the back four a little more and the back three a little less, I don't see anything that stops him from getting 25, 27, even 30 league goals this season. I think that's the only reason we have a shot to be a top four contender. Um, and if the manager doesn't criminally misuse him, I, I think he's our best player and has a shot to be the player of the season in the Premier League. Well, all right. All right. Uh, I don't disagree with that. I think actually last season when we were looking to kind of place our bets on players who were going to be uh, ultra successful in a uh, full season, um, I think both Nick and I felt that uh, Obama Yang was a uh, absolutely a golden boot uh, candidate, and uh, I think probably he is, tied for it. Yep. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, also had some stiff competition. Um, 
I think he could also be the person who wins it, you know, individually this season just because he is that good. And I know um, he's one of those players that, uh, you know, I have to go after an ultimate team because, uh, you know, I can't <laughs> I can't go play FIFA with Arsenal now. <laughs> No, I know. And by the way, like, look, let me be clear. I, I said he could be the best player in the Premier League. I mean, I realize that's with my Arsenal glasses on. I mean, Salah, Sané, Virgil van Dijk is a candidate. City's got five or six candidates of their own. De Bruyne would have to be in there. Gabriel Jesus is excellent. Cunaguero, um, although he's probably just a little past it. Raheem Sterling might be the best player in the league. So Aubameyang, I think, is the best non-City or Liverpool player, and then they can have their own freaking competition off in the distance. <laughs> all right. Well, last question before we get you out of here and uh, close this down. I think you kind of already alluded to it, but where do you think Chelsea finish league position at the end of the season? I can't see any scenario where Chelsea finish in the top three. So I think I could see Chelsea having one of those Chelsea-type seasons where they just are terrible for a stretch of time and are never in the top four race, like a a seventh or eighth place finish that you guys seem to sort of pull out of there. I, I guess what Jose's last season there, did you finish? Yeah, it's, it's happened the ten, once the tenth, to us. Tenth place, tenth, yeah. it's, hap- it's happened once. It's not a Chelsea yeah, type okay, season that's, typically. That, that's fair. To be fair, yeah, no, you're winning the league more than you are finishing tenth. That's that's fair. That's fair. Um, but no, I mean, I I think there's a lot of flaws in your squad. I mean, some of the players you really depend on are getting older. Your your coach is unproven at this level. You don't have goals in the side that you know you consistently can depend on. Now, could Batishwai, like you said, be that guy, or could Tammy Abraham be that guy, or could Pulisic come in and be as good as Hazard right off the bat? I mean, sure, anything could happen, but it's probably not going to. Um, I, I think fourth is certainly possible for Chelsea, but if if you had to give me just a Behind this guy, guess where Chelsea finished this season? I'm going to say sixth or sixth or seventh. All right. Well, we will leave on that depressing note. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I mean, I, you know, and I'm sure everybody listening probably knows all these things about Chelsea that I'm just not seeing that that make that a ridiculous statement. And the biggest reason you might not finish that poorly is because Arsenal and United are terrible, also. But I I don't think teams that can't score can compete at the top of the league. And until you show me where those goals are coming from, and I know I'm re- repeating myself, I, I don't see how. Chelsea can have a big season without a big goal scorer. Well, we, we look forward to continuing the conversation over the course of the season Please, as yeah. we uh, swerve away from the extremes of Chelsea Twitter and the Arsenal fan TVs to have more <laughs> elevated conversations uh, between supporters of clubs that are diametrically opposed. But until then, Elliot, it's been a real pleasure. We've enjoyed having you on. Again, you can find him at Yankee Gunner to get uh, the very much unbiased or super biased opinion on <laughs> Arsenal. Uh, Elliot, thanks again for jumping on. Yeah, as I always say uh, in our podcast, you can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner, and I highly recommend it. (laughs) Well, uh, we thank you for coming on. Thanks, Nick, for joining me. And Chelsea fans, until next time, you know what to do. Keep that blue flag flying high.